uh, with diligence. And so that's where we're going to be. I'm going to be reading from the Young's Literal Translation because it includes the definite article, which is in the original text. It says, and they, this is the early church, were continuing steadfastly in the teaching of the apostles and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. So the first thing that I want to call to your attention is the continuing steadfastly. Uh, Regardless of what translation you're using, they'll probably use two or three English words to communicate this concept. When it's the original, there's just a Greek word, but there's no single word in the English uh, language that would accurately convey uh, this thought. In the Greek, it's proskarterio. Karterio means to give constant attention towards or to be um, steadfast. But because they put the pros in front of it, it means that they persevered in it. They pressed into it. It makes it emphatic. It's it's as if it says that they persevered in focusing on these four things. All right, so I want you to understand that that's important. It doesn't say that the early church um, understood these four things. It doesn't say that the early church had tried all of these four things or had experienced these four things. It said that they had dedicated themselves in perseverance to focus upon these four things as a priority that these are the four priorities of the church when it was exploding. And so I'd like to look at those. The first one, it says the teaching of the apostles. In the teaching of the apostles, in short, this is the New Testament. This is the New Testament work of the apostles. We know that because this was actually one of the three criteria for canonization of the scriptures. So it's, um, many, many people will, will say that, well, you know, it was, a, it was a conspiracy or something. The list of books that we have in our New Testament, which we call the canon, the measuring wad, the ruler of, of, of text. In other words, it's not a good book, it's a God book. And so the idea of, of, the, of this canon, the oldest one is the Muratorian fragment, and, and it has almost all the books of the New Testament with the exclusion of uh, Jude and I think James and I think uh, uh, Second Peter and Second and Third John. All right, so the list was almost complete in the very first century of what was used. And the, and the reason was because they had three criteria. And the first criteria is for it to be included in the canon. It has to be a work of one of the apostles. It either has to be written by or under the oversight of an apostle, someone who was trained by Jesus Christ directly. So obviously, the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of John, those were written by apostles. But what about Mark? Well, Mark was written under the tutelage of Peter, and Luke was written under the oversight of Paul. And so the idea that it was an apostolic origin, that there was somebody who was directly trained by Jesus Christ, was overseeing that book. That's, it, it was a teaching of the apostles. That's why we don't have uh, a, in our Bible a book of Spurgeon or a book of Billy Graham or a book of somebody uh, who may have been a great um, teacher of God after the fact. They were not under the direct tutelage of Jesus. And so when it says that they dedicated themselves to the teachings of the apostles, it means that they gave themselves unto the New Testament. You might question, well, what about the Old Testament? The Old Testament had already been established. That canon was locked in. And those are all prophecies pointing to the ministry of Jesus. The New Testament is how that, um, the ministry of Jesus once he was here. All right, so they dedicated themselves to the word of God. 
Now, you've heard this, uh, I've heard this, and it's something that goes to the effect of, well, you know, but you can't just rely solely upon the Bible. You need to, like, also look at, um, you know, we, we, we have to go outside the Bible. The Bible is insufficient for so many things. We have to go outside the Bible. That's stupid. That's crazy stupid. And let me explain to you why that's stupid. Because there is not two bodies of facts out there. We all, list, we all exist in the same cosmos and the same universe. There is not a group of Christian facts and a group of non-Christian facts. The observable universe is the observable universe. We all exist with the ex exact same observable facts. The issue is what paradigm, what worldview, what ideology are we looking at those facts through? Okay, that's going to change things, isn't it? So, so much of what is called science is the opinion of some scientist who doesn't believe in God. That's not science, that's opinion. All right, so what we have to do is we have to look at, well, what does the person believe who is looking at the facts? Because I would say that the author who, the, the author who created everything, they, that would probably be the right opinion. And I'm going to say that once you veer, even so much as a fraction of a degree, from the word of God, you come up with really stupid ideas. Like evolution. Evolution is a crazy, stupid idea. Now, when I'm talking about evolution, I'm talking about Darwinian evolution. I'm talking about what we would consider biological evolution. And the idea is it was advanced with the idea that here is a mechanical process, here is a biological process, a naturalistic process that would explain our existence. Like, why are we here? And the problem is it's based on, it, the only reason it held any water is because it was introduced in the 1800s when we didn't, we were too ignorant to know better. But you've seen it, we've all been trained in it. We all remember it from school. There's this evolutionary tree. It starts out with a protozoa and it keeps branching into all of this diversity of life. We've never seen that. It's never happened. It's never been observed. There's not been one new little twig come off of this tree and all of, uh, all of observable history. What we actually see is the opposite of that, and we experience it every year, and it's called extinction. And extinction is, is that there's all this diversity of life, and every year there's less and less and less, almost like we're winding down to an end. All right, so this is what we experience. We don't experience evolution. We experience extinction. And so when we have to... So, so this idea that once we get away from the Scripture we start to lose, we start to come up with bad ideas that we somehow evolved from a rock. Because ultimately, you have to go back to that. Not to a monkey, you have to go back to a rock. And you have to go back to some, and that's just for biological evolution. We didn't deal with chemical evolution or cosmological evolution, but we've got to give an explanation. We have this miracle of the cosmos. What caused it? I think the cause has to transcend the cosmos itself. It has to be transcendent. Well, well, what can explain, what's the causal agents of life? Well, obviously, life doesn't come from non-life, so it'll have to be a living cause. But, but what about, how do we explain the miracle of the mind? Well, intelligence doesn't come from non-intelligence. There has to be an intelligent cause. And what about this idea that we all are moved deeply with moral convictions about what is right and what is wrong. I don't care how crazy freakazoid you are, you have a sense of what's right and wrong. Morals don't just pop out of non-moral existence. Whatever the cause is must be moral. So this transcendent, living, intelligent, moral cause, 
is God. But you see, that verdict is still out once you stray from the scripture. They don't know how to explain all of these things. The cosmos itself, uh, what we consider experiential um, reality, is is called the stem, space-time, energy, and matter. And, And they're still trying to argue about where did it come from. Why? Because they walked away from the teaching of the apostles. They, they walked away from the word of God. What explains space, time, energy, and matter? Well, you see, they skipped the first page of the Bible. For in the beginning time, God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter, and God said, let there be light, energy, and there was light. So we had a, it was a created entity. You see, so the, when, once, we, once we leave the Bible, it just starts getting weird. But we get intimidated because people start using all these five-syllable words. Like... Um, transgenderism <laughs> right we've got transgenderism there's a lot of syllables there but that's stupid <laughs> the word itself is an oxymoron trans means to change gender means genus birth type people say no you don't understand gender's in the brain no it's not that stupid Gender has never been in the brain. You can't change the meaning of a word in the past couple decades and obliterate its use for centuries. Gender is an old word. It comes from genus, which we get the word genetic. You know, like in chromosomes, like X and Y. All right, that's what the word means. All right, so the idea that you can change gender, that's, that's not true. And, and so what we have is, um, once you buy into that idea, then all of a sudden we've normalized something like men wearing dresses. And we're like, well, you know, but that's, you know, but we don't talk about that. Why not? I mean, think about it, guys. Just like pretend, pretend we took a nap for about a handful of years. Uh, a handful of years ago, we all knew exactly what a man wearing a dress was. It was called comedy <laughs> because it was ludicrous. It was silly. It was ridiculous. Milton Berle dresses up like a woman on the Milton Berle show because it's comedy. Tom Hanks dresses up like a woman in Bosom Buddies because it's comedy. Dustin Hoffman dresses up like a woman in Tootsie because it's comedy. Robin Williams dresses up like a woman in Mrs. Doubtfire because it's comedy. It's ridiculous. It's ludicrous. Now, they want to set somebody in a dress in front of our children and tell them to take them seriously. That's stupid, and we should not submit to that. So, but it's not just stupid, it's wicked. The scripture says this, Deuteronomy chapter 2, 22. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, nor shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. And yet, we've got the church, by and large, closing our eyes, sitting down, and being nice. By the way, nice is a bad word. When people come and tell you to be nice, you need to tell them, no, it's stupid, and then have them come listen to this. (laughs) Nice means neurotic, insecure, um, compromising, and egocentric. Show me the verse where Jesus was nice. You see, somebody's strapping themselves in a rocket slid to hell, and we're supposed to be nice to them. Like, well, that's good. You know, I want to affirm you. No, I want to rip the straps off you, get you out of that rocket before you go to hell. 
That's called loving. We're called to be loving, not called to be nice. And so we've got to understand that we, we need to come back and we need to quit accepting the frame of the way things are presented to us because the church is submitting to this now when it's ludicrous. It's ridiculous. And so, um, what's another one? Oh, here's a big one. How about race? Now, remember they said gender is in the mind? Like gender is a social construct? It's not. It's genetic. It's, it's, it's for real. Race is a social construct. There is no such thing as race. You say, oh, yeah, there is. There's red, yellow, black, and white. No, there's not. Give me the verse. The Bible's very clear. Adam and Eve were our parents. There is absolutely no scientific genetic foundation for race. All of us are 99.9% .9 identical if we're human. That means we could take the darkest brother in here and you could stand him right here. The most ebony brother could be standing right here and you could get another brother who's white, bald, and has a stupid beard and stand him right here. <laughs> and it's going to be a flip of a coin on who I'm more genetically similar to. We know this medically. Nobody says, oh, man, he needs a kidney. What do we do? Here's another white guy. Let's get his white kidney and put it in there. Nobody does that. You'll kill him. You have to make sure that they're genetically compatible because you see skin color like hair color, like eye color, like the length of your nose, like how tall you are is completely irrelevant. It means nothing. It's absolutely nothing, definitely nothing to divide over. And yet we've got the culture out there shoving it in our face continuously. And you've got the church capitulating to it. We've got a Bible. We should go back to the Word of God. What does the Word of God say? In Galatians chapter 3, Jesus said, there's neither Jew nor Greek. Or, I'm sorry, Galatians, Paul says. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. G God's saying to us, this, the, the Scripture is telling us, you guys divide over nationality and skin color. He says, I don't see that. He says, you guys divide over who has money and who does not have money. God says, that's completely irrelevant to me. He says, you guys even divide over male and female. When I already told you that I created you in the image of God, male and female created I them. And you divide over that when, when God's saying, that's irrelevant. He says, you're dividing over things that I have already made clear are irrelevant. And when we see the church go along with the culture down these bad trails... It's because at some point, we quit giving steadfast priority to the teaching of the apostles, to the Word of God. We have to make sure that we stay in the Word of God. So, gentlemen, as an application to this, what we have to consider is that, that we must know the Word. We, must, you, we need to know the Word as it pertains to the headlines that are on today's papers. We need to know the Word as it pertains to government and as it pertains to economics and as it pertains to marriage and as it pertains to, to child rearing. We need to know the Word of God and we need to know how to apply it to our lives. Now, you may say, well, I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm just, I, I have a really difficult time with the Bible. Then repent and get yourself committed steadfastly to an understanding of the Word of God. And... Here's a hot tip on that. It's the second element. And they dedicated themselves as a priority to the fellowship. The fellowship here, it doesn't say fellowship in general. These are not vague ideas that, that are being talked about here. They're specific. That's why the definite article is important. They committed themselves to the word of God. They committed themselves to the fellowship, which is the church.
And so you'll have people, you've probably heard it said, I've heard it said, I even said it once upon a time when I was an idiot. I said, well, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Of course you do, that's stupid. Completely stupid, you don't have to go to church. Why would we ever think that? It's, like, it's not like Jesus sat down with the apostles and said, hey guys, I got an idea. I mean, it's just a thought. We don't really have to do it. But I was wondering, like, maybe we should gather together, you know, like the Elks Club, and we can drink wine and do nice things for the community. That's not what he did. In fact, what he did is he was in a place called Tel Dan, and there was all of this heresy surrounding them. All of the world belief systems were swirling around them in this location. And Jesus says, who do the people say I am? And they said, well, the, the world thinks you're this and this of you and this of you and this. And he said, but who do you think I am? And Peter, in a moment of inspiration, says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, Peter, yes, you just operated in faith. No flesh revealed that to you. You were walking in faith. My father revealed that to you. I'm going to name you Rock because it's on the rock of faith that I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What did he say he'd build? My church. Jesus said, upon the rock of faith and the gospel, I will build my church. He took possession and ownership of it doesn't sound to me like it's a suggestion. And he tells us the reason for the church. He says, so that the gates of hell will not prevail. Now, we need to remember the gates are not uh, an attacking force. The gates are defensive. They n nobody's ever said, quick, run away, they close the gates. It's, that's, the gates don't attack. <laughs> if they close the gates, it's because we're attacking. It says, the gates of hell will not prevail, prevail against the church. Now, the gates of hell are those structures that are built around the mind and the psyches of individuals so that the light of the gospel doesn't break through. They're lies, all right? They're, it's the stick that presents the stupor. And so on an individual basis, you might be dealing with somebody you know that doesn't know the gospel. And so you're working directly with them one-on-one -on -one to break open the gates of hell. But those are not the only gates. There are also gates that are being established over cultures and over states and over nations that, inf that, that um, are secondary gates, larger gates. And what God's saying is that this is what my church is for. Because if one can send 1,000 to flight and two 10,000, and that's not a linear relationship, that's a logarithmic relationship, right? It's not one in 2,000, it's one in 10. Then the idea is what can the church do? The church can break down gates and barriers. And guys, we have to get very real right now. Uh, we've woke up and we have got to accept it at this point in time. Tyranny has advanced much farther than, we ever, than I thought it had. And the grip of tyranny is upon our nation. And it is presenting itself in such a way as to rip away our freedoms. And it has to be pushed back upon. It is, it's penetrated to a level that's even, it's, it's affecting healthcare, it's affecting economy, it's affecting everything. It's been pushed upon us. And how are we going to push back? Through the church. I'll be honest. Let's think about this just for a wee little second. There's no reason that a non-Christian should ever be elected. At this point forward, now that you guys all know this, there's no reason 
for any non-Christian to be elected to any school board, to any city council, as in a position for any mayor or any representative or senator in this state. You raise up the church. Uh, what does it take to get a city council member? Oh, about 120 votes. What have we been doing? What have we been doing? We bought into another lie. Oh, separation of church and state. Excuse me. The state is of the people, by the people, for the people, right? It's, a, it's people. What's the church? Oh, it's a building? No, it's not. It's the people. So what are they saying when they're saying separate church and state? They're saying, well, you Christian people stay out of our state people thing. How about no? That's stupid. I know my Bible. I don't know what your Bible says. Um... But I know, I, I know what my Bible says, and my Bible says that when the wicked rule, the people groan, but when the righteous increase, the people rejoice. You notice there's a difference. The righteous increase, the wicked rule. Jesus said, the Lord of the Gentiles rule it over them, but it shall not be so with you. He who seeks to be first among you will be servant of all. You see, so Christian leadership is completely different than godless leadership. Godless leadership is tyrannical. Christian leadership is servant-hearted. And that's why every city council member and every school board member and every representative and every should be a Christian. And honestly, I'm not coming up with a radical idea here, guys. This was the founding of our nation. You see, there was another time when tyranny was, placing, was, was, was gaining ground on this property, on this continent. There was a bunch of people who said, hey, we're all Brits and we're all equal. And then they found out, oh, no, we're not. Britain isn't treating us all equal. There's tyranny coming in. And so a group uh, of founding fathers got together and they wrote a really cool document. You should read it. It's called the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> really awesome. It's about this long. It's about that, like that big. Unless you use smaller font, then it's this big. <laughs> and at the very beginning of it, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, there goes your whole race and all that other nonsense, right? and are endowed by their creator, in other words, God, with certain unalienable rights, which means the government is underneath God, that God established the rules, and government operates uh, under God. And so their whole idea is that, and, and England, you are tyrannically touching the liberties that were given to us by God. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of well-being, or uh, they use the word happiness there. It doesn't have the same meaning now, so it's misconstrued. The pursuit of righteousness, the pursuit of well-being. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of righteousness, these are our unalienable rights. And at the bottom of this document, they sealed it. They didn't just say, hey, this is a good idea. These aren't just words. They made it uh, right before they signed it. They put this clause in there, and it's really cool. We mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And then they signed it. We should be doing the exact same thing with our churches. To our church, we pledge our life, our fortune, and our sacred honor, knowing that we could lose the first two, but they'll never touch the third. Some of the founders lost their lives. Many of them lost their fortunes. Not a single one of them lost their sacred honor. And we will get to, we'll get to rejoice with them in heaven. But we need to recognize that, the, that, that this baton has now been passed to us, and we become a bunch of wusses, and we need to repent. We have been placed, we are the church, and we are the conscience of the state. And so it's important that we act upon this. We dedicate ourselves to the word of God 
And then we dedicate ourselves to the church. Why? That we might kick in the gates of hell on an individual basis as we speak one-on-one to other people that we love, but at a corporate basis, higher and higher and higher to push back the darkness that is invading our nation. So that's the second one. The third one, it says, and they steadfastly continued in the breaking of the bread. Now here's an issue that has divided the church from the inside, isn't it? Um, Well, but how often do we take it? Do we take it weekly? Do we take it monthly? Do we take it annually? Do we take it daily? Well, and then, and what is it? Is it is it, is it the transubstantiation? Is it the, physical presence? is it the physical body and blood of Christ? Or is it a spiritual truth? Or is this just a representation? I mean, how do we take it? What do we use? Do we use wine? Do we use Welch's? Do we use Pepsi? What do we use? All of those have been used. And just to expose how prevalent this is, in your hearts, I know you just said, of course we don't use wine, and of course we don't use Pepsi. We use Welch's, just like Jesus said, right? <laughs> You see, we divide on issues and that again is allowing stupidity into the church. This is an ordinance by Jesus Christ unto us. We know that an ordinance given to us by Christ means that we have some kind of earthly practice that is enacting a spiritual truth. Now, I think in this room, the part that I want, the the, the side that we could have a tendency to fall off of is the side to make it less than what it is. And we have a tendency, I've even heard it referred to as juice and crackers. That's that's offensive. And that's wrong. And I'll prove it. You have a child, you love that child, and that child dies. And you bury the child. And over that child's grave, you place a tombstone. And you engrave in that stone the name you gave that child. And you put two dates on there. The date that the Lord gave you that child and the date that the Lord took them away. Now you know that your child is not there, but that's where you laid their body, and that's where you exalted the tombstone. It's not really them, but you got a problem with somebody sitting on that tombstone reading their phone? You got a problem with somebody uh, leaving their garbage on that tombstone? They go, hey, it's just a stone. They're not here. Does that make a difference to the parent? Absolutely not. So you tell me, when we approach the elements of the Lord's Supper and we say, hey God, we're praying now and we're gonna take the Lord's Supper, I think he shows up. And I'm wondering if the father's standing there going, how are you going to approach the body and blood of my son? And I think we shouldn't be coming up to it like, oh, it's juice and a cracker. I think we need to take these elements seriously because we need to understand what they what the importance of these think about it the word of god yes the church yeah the breaking of bread yes this is the cross of jesus christ we have to understand what this means i'll give you a little bit of a history lesson when jesus is doing the lord's supper it's during the passover because remember he's the lamb of god which takes away the sin of the world and this is on the passover and so he, he was sharing with his disciples what is known as the Pesach. And I don't know if you've ever gotten to, to, to participate in a Passover Seder, but it's an extremely rich meal full of symbolism and full of meaning. 
It's a meal that incorporates four different cups that you drink from. There's a meal in there. And there's this process that goes over the whole meal that's very interesting. And it involves something called matzah. All right? And so there's a matzah. And the matzah, this is a matzah. And whenever you see a matzah, it will always look like this because of the rabbinical... uh, Um, rules for making a matzah. It might have rounded edges, but it's going to look exactly like this. It's going to have to be pierced at a very even spacing because it's to be proven as unleavened, which means there's no sin in it. There can't be any, it can't look like a sopapilla. It can't puff up. So they've got to poke it, poke it, poke it, poke it, poke it. You have to bake it until you can see the marks of the baking upon it. You have to do that to ensure that it has reached the appropriate temperature and that there's no trace of leaven that could have snuck in there. And so you, you burn it until all cultures are completely dead. So it has to have those marks on there. And because you, you need to make sure that it reaches those, it, it'll always be used these tools that will cause these striations, which is uh, pretty interesting when you go back to uh, Isaiah chapter 53. It says, for he was pierced for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our sin fell upon him and by his stripes, we are healed. Uh, so, kind of an interesting uh, piece there, right? Well, the Jews have something like this. And it, what it is, I don't know if you can kind of see, it's three pockets. You see how there's three pockets in one, one, one bag? Three pockets. And there's three matzahs in here. And since it's three in one, the Jews call this a trinity. Yes, they do. <laughs> and at the beginning of the meal, they will take the center matzah out. The center one out of the Trinity, they will break it, they'll break a piece off of it, place it back in, as if there is some aspect of the center matzah that remains in the Trinity, maybe the heavenly glory. Then they take a shroud and they wrap the other part of the matzah in a shroud and the host of the meal goes and hides it in the house until the end of the meal when they send the children out to bring it back. And when they bring it back, you pay for it because it's the bread of redemption and you redeem this back. Then this part is called the afikoman. It's done after the meal and the afikoman means that which comes after, like, I don't know, after the law. And then everybody, it doesn't matter how many people are in the room, everyone eats from this one piece of bread. So let's go back to this. It says, then after the meal, he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he said unto his disciples who were with him, take this, all of you, and eat of it. For this is my body, which is broken for you. You see what's going on? If you ask a Jew, why why do you do all this? I mean, what what does the Trinity represent? They said, oh, that's Isaac, that's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's like, well, why'd you pull out Isaac, break him, wrap him in a shroud, bury him, bring him up at the end as a redemption? <laughs> it seems to me it's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then after, and then it gets cooler. After the afikoman, you drink the third cup. The third cup is the cup of the blessing. The cup of the blessing. If you go back to the, the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant that was given to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, it was repeated for all three of them, was the Abrahamic covenant where God said to Abraham, I will give you a land. 
I will take you out of Ur of the Chaldean Empire. I will take you out of Babylon and I will bring you to this place and I will give you a land. And the second part is I will make you a great people of you. Your children will be like the stars of the sky and the dust of the earth. I will make a great people out of you. But the third one, and he says, and through you, everyone on the planet is going to be blessed. This is the Messiah. So the Abrahamic covenant is he promises a land, a people, and a Messiah. And the Messiah is the one who's called the blessing to all. And so after the Afikom, and he says, now let's drink the cup of the blessing. What is it? It's the blessing of salvation. But I told you there's four cups. The fourth cup is called the Hallel, the cup of praise. But Jesus, after the second cup, says, I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it with you anew in paradise. We're all waiting for the fourth cup, which is at the wedding supper of the Lamb. All right, so, that, so, so you see the meaning here. You see, that this, this, this practice is looking to the cross. And it's the only reason that we move and we breathe and we have our being. That on the cross, Jesus took our place. Because Jesus is giving this meal and he's saying, guys, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be turned over to the Gentiles and they're going to crucify me. And I'm going to go in and three days later, I'm coming back. But just so you know, everything you've done since you were a little child was about me. For centuries, we've been doing this. This is my body. And they're going, what? You're the Afikoman. And he says, and you eat it. This is my body broken for you. I'm taking your punishment. That's called, uh, um, uh, I'm locking. Substitutionary, it's not redemptive. Propitiatory, sorry. <sighs> Getting old. All right, propitiatory. <laughs> propitiatory means to take the punishment for someone else. It says, my body broken for you. He takes the punishment we deserve. His blood's poured out as the cup of redemption because it's a redemptive. It means that he pays the debt we owe. So he substitute. he takes our place on the cross. We're the ones who are supposed to be on the cross. He never sinned. He's on that. That's substitutionary. He takes our punishment. That's propitiation. He, he pays for our, our, our debt. That's redemption. And because of that, he brings us together as atonement which means he was made man so he can reach out and grab our hand, but he's God so he can reach out and grab God's hand because you remember there's a part that's left in the Trinity. It says that Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory when he came down here, but there's still a part of him there, right? That's why he can make the atonement and bring us back together. This, is, this, isn't, little, this isn't juice and crackers. This is our salvation. This is the first priority. Just as, uh, just as it was being said with travel, who are you? Depends on whose you are. This is our identity that we've been bought with the blood of Christ. We have not been bought. Uh, our value is not based on anything that's in a bank account or uh, something that we've accomplished or a resume. Our identity is based upon in Jesus Christ. So the breaking of bread and finally the prayers. It does not say the prayer as if in one prayer that we would rotely repeat, but it says the prayers plural. And it's the spiritual practice of talking with God as we see practiced in the word of God. But you've probably heard this. I've heard this. Maybe you've said it. Well, there's nothing we can do now but pray. That's stupid. <laughs> That's crazy stupid. Because that implies that somehow we could do something apart from God. That somehow there's some wisdom in me there's some skill base in me. There's some authority in me. There's some power in me that I can help you. 
That's nuts, isn't it? But we do this all the time. Somebody comes up and says, oh man, I'm sick. What do we start doing? All of a sudden, we start giving them our medical advice. Like all of a sudden, we're, like we're doctors. You see women do it. It's like, man, I'm not feeling good. They'll start giving out advice. Usually it involves essential oils or something, right? <laughs> With men, it's more stupid. It's like, dude, I'm not feeling good. Do you eat? I eat. I'm just, you know, I try eating. It's like, yeah, but man, I got heartburn. It's like, mm, try coffee. No, I got heartburn. Yeah, make it really hot and strong. That, that helps me, right? What are we doing giving out medical advice? We're idiots, right? This is embarrassing. So I watched this video. I watched this video on bee therapy. I don't know if you ever heard about bee therapy, but people who are all locked up with arthritis, they'll take bees and they'll sting the area that's all swollen where the inflammation is, and it'll cause the inflammation to go down. They can walk again. And I saw this, I thought, wow, this is really good. Well, a friend of mine, he was a beekeeper, and his sinuses got all swollen up. And so they were all inflamed, so he couldn't breathe. So I told him about bee therapy. I said, yeah, you sting, and, and, the, and I bet it'll go down. So the next time he's robbing his bees, him and the other guy, he's also a Christian brother, they decide to try it out. So they're stinging him on the face with these bees about 20 times, right? So when I see him, when I see him, there's these two little slits where his eyes used to be, right? And he's all his bulbous thing, his forehead, his whole upper head, part of his head is all distorted, right? And uh, he, looks like, he looks like a Klingon from Star Trek that got in a bar fight or something, right? I mean, he just looks, it's just like, dude, now I did not accept responsibility because I'm a guy. I blamed him. I'm like, what were you doing listening to me, right? You know, what, is it, what are you doing? So... So the idea here is like, what are we doing giving out our advice? We know that we're idiots. So then we'll do what we think is the next best thing. Well, hey, I know this guy. I know this guy. I, you know, I, I've, I've got this doctor. I've got this contractor I know. I've got this financial manager that you probably need to talk to. I've got this guy. And of course, if you accept this advice, you'll get confirmed, right? You go up to somebody and you say, hey, yeah, Frank, uh, you know, uh, recommended I come to you. Oh, Frank, he's a good guy. Well, he gets affirmed. And you know, we've been in the business for 12 years, you know. So you're thinking, wow. So you're like a preteen in this area. That's uh, comforting. Um, how about I go to the ancient of days? Right? Why am I going to somebody? Why are we going to, I know this guy. Wait a minute. I know God. Now, don't get me wrong. God does move through human agency. He does. God moves through human agency. But you need to do it in the right direction. Going, giving somebody advice before going to prayer is coming at it from the wrong direction. It's like going to a proctologist to get your teeth worked on. You're going the wrong way. What you've got to do is we start with prayer. We pray first. And then we let God lead. And so I don't know if you're taking notes. You should be because like pearls of wisdom are flying out of my mouth. You should be right. Pray first. And pray is an acronym because you might be like me and thinking like somebody comes up and says, brother, would you pray for me? And I know personally I lock up because I think, oh, God, uh, you should get somebody who knows was a good prayer or prayer. I don't, I don't even know how to say it. I don't even, right? You don't want me to pray for you. But we do. We need to repent. And it's very simple. And pray is the acronym. Somebody comes to you. You don't give them advice. They don't need what you can squeeze out of you. You need to send them to God and you just say, let's pray. You start off with praise. P is for praise. And you praise God 
because you need to remind yourself who you're talking to because we get distracted by this world to the point where we make God less than who he is and therefore when we go to pray for we don't even think anything's going to happen because we forgot who we're talking to and so we start with praise is not what Jesus did in Matthew 6 he said say this he said our father he loves us who art in heaven holy is your name we praise him for who he is we thank him for what he's done and when we see God as who he is, he's omnipotent, all-knowing, everything else, we're going to start to see ourselves reflected, and we're not. So the R is repent. We need to repent, and we need to make sure that we're right with God before we start making our requests. A great place for that is Psalm 51. Psalm 51, it says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are just when you speak and you are blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. You desire truth in the inmost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Blood, it just keeps going. It's a great song, 51. You want to know how to repent? Read through that one as it's your own prayer. So we praise him and then we repent and get our, and we, now we know who we're talking to and we know who we are. Then you ask. And then you ask the desires of your heart. But remember how it says to ask. It says this, Jesus said this in John chapter 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Whatever you ask in my name. Now, we have turned that into something, again, stupid, and we just add on this little phrase at the end, in Jesus' name. That's not what it means. It means when you ask something, and when you speak on behalf of somebody's name, you're representing them. You guys have had your name used in vain probably by your kids. Dad said that you're supposed to give me all your allowance. I don't think that's what dad said. That's what dad said. I get it all the time as the headmaster of the school. Well, Pastor Sean, I heard that Pastor Sean said this. Did you see my lips move? No, then I didn't say it. Uh, We have wonderful children in our school, but they're liars. All of them. They're all little liars. All right. They're wonderful little Christian liars. And so the idea here is that you, we know what it's like to have our name used in vain. We don't want to use his name in vain. So the idea there is we're supposed to ask in Jesus' name, which means it's going to be consistent with what the Lord... So it should make us stop and think about how we're asking, right? God, is this really what you would desire? And then finally, why is you yield in thanksgiving? You yield at the very end in thanksgiving. It says, and whatever you, it says, and give thanks in everything, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Give thanks in everything, for all things work together for good for us. Do you believe the Bible or not? And it says, continue steadfast in prayer. Steadfast, there's that continue steadfast again. Being watchful in thanksgiving. You see, my ideas are the processing. All I can do is what I can see with my eyes and hear with my ears and smell and taste and touch as it's processed by this three-pound ball of fat in my head. And that's what it is. That's all, it's, and so am I going to trust in that? Or am I going to trust in the one who knows all things and is all-powerful and is merciful and benevolent? And so we need to do this. When we pray, we need to be thankful. I asked for this. God gave me this. 
I should ask why. And I think that if we will meditate on it, and if we will hold fast in Thanksgiving, we'll go, God, I asked for this. You gave me this. Oh, I, because you, and you want to meet it, and that, that's brilliant. Unfortunately, what we do is we ask for this, we get this, we get mad at God. You didn't take my order right, Lord. That's what we do. So therefore, you know what? I'm not talking to you anymore. I, I can't trust you to answer my prayers. Now, I, don't think you, I don't think you answer every prayer. God goes, yeah, I promise to answer every prayer. I do, and I answer it perfectly. You're just a little wuss. And, and you got your little, you got all, you got all butthurt about this and, it's, and you need to, you need to repent. God's answering us correctly. He's answering us perfectly. We need to be, we, we need to, these are worldly ideas that have crept into our faith. The word of God is where we go first. And if it veers from the word of God, we let go of it. We dedicate ourselves to the church for it's God's plan for pushing back the darkness. And we don't, we don't go out there rogue like Jason Bourne. That's, that's fantasy. We're an army dedicated to the fellowship of the saints. We dedicate ourselves to the cross and understanding that the only reason we can do anything is because God took our place, because God was broken in our place, because God paid our debt for us, and that he is the one who will lead us. And then ultimately, we need to pray first and keep our mouth shut for a little bit. And I'm telling you something, I'm not saying this as that I've been doing this well. I've bought into some of these lies too. I've been stupid as well. I've been smacked with these lies and I adopted them somehow. I don't know why, but we should repent as the church. Because these were the practices of the church when it exploded. And that's what the Lord's calling us to do. These are not ancillary practices. These are not options. These are the priorities of the church. God has spoken and we should obey. So ultimately, um, gentlemen, don't be stupid, amen? <laughs> Father, we praise you and we thank you. We praise you for you are holy, you are true, you are all powerful, you are all wise, and you are our Father. And we repent, Lord, that we have listened to the voices of men, godless men, over your word. Please forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would write us now, that you would fill us with your, well, first, that you would wash us with your blood, and you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, and that you would resolve, make a resolution within us that we should not let go of you, and Lord, that we would always seek your counsel first before we offer any advice to anyone else. That in all things, we would not rely upon our wisdom, our strength, our anything, but that we would look to you for you are our God and our Savior, our hope and our healing, our truth and our life. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.